cross the streams. Excuse me, Egon. You said crossing the streams was bad. Across the Streams podcast, Kip and Kane Ion bringing you episode four today. Kane's going to take the lead in the interview segment. Uh, going to talk to Brandon Agert, President and Technology Consultant of Entree Technology Services in Billings, Montana. Uh, we're going to keep the format similar in that Kane's going to do the question and answer segment with Brandon, but you're going to hear my and Kane's joint reactions to some of his answers spliced into the interview. So the segment itself will be a little longer, uh, but instead of a separate reacts segment, we'll give it to you real time as Brandon's talking. You'll hear our thoughts on, on what he's thinking. We also bring you a wild card segment today, movies you can't not watch on TV. So imagine yourself sitting around late night, can't fall asleep, or during the day on a sick day from work, and you see a movie, a certain movie on TV that you're just going to end up watching, even though you've seen it 42 times. Kane and I give you our unique list of the ones that we can't help but stare and sit at and waste our time watching all the way through. Cross the Streams, Episode 4, coming at you. Across the Streams podcast, Kane I own, Kip I own. Today's interview segment, I've got a really good friend of mine, one of my best friends in the world, a guy by the name of Brandon Eggert, who I've known for a long time since our days as college football players, college football teammates together at Montana State University. We went on to coach together at Montana State for a year, and then Brandon went a different path and found a different stream and is now a very successful business owner. Entree Technologies in, in Billings, Montana. And so I wanted to get Brandon on here and talk to him about some of his cross-the-stream moments in life, some of his philosophies, and just I think he's got an interesting story. I think he's got some interesting points of views. And you'll hear my brother and I's reaction to Brandon's story throughout this interview. Matter of fact, it, it's funny. This is going to be educational for myself. Brandon's always been the uh, Chandler Bing of our friends when it comes to his job. If you ask our group of friends what Brandon does, I guarantee you probably 95% of our group doesn't know exactly what Brandon Ager does for a living. And so the first part of the interview is just talking about his backstory, where he grew up, his family, and uh, kind of his upbringing. So here we go. First things first, Brandon, why don't you just kind of dive into your history, man? I know I know most of it for the most part, but I know our listeners would like to hear about just kind of your life story, your background a little bit, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the other stuff as we go. No problem. Uh, I was born in the uh, Seattle, Washington area over in uh, Kirkland, Washington. I'm one of one of two brothers, which sounds familiar. Um, yep. Yep. We're uh, about, about two years apart. Again, uh, very fi- very familiar timeline storyline. Um, my both my parents are educators. Again, some more commonalities between the host and myself. <laughs> yep. um, I don't know. Is commonalities a word? Is that? It is. I don't know. It's, I think I just made for it up. this for this show. It is. We're gonna go with it. I moved to Cheney, Washington when I was young, about four years old. Grew up there in a small town that is close to a bigger town in Spokane. Spokane and had a lot of great. Good old Spokompton. And it's because of uh, the place that I grew up in that I feel like I was, I had a, a sheltered life, but an exposed life. You know, I, I think, uh, I think growing up where I did 
helped uh, kind of expose me to things and shape my ideas on things. And, you know, I feel like I, I got a lot of both ends of the spectrum. I had, I had rich friends and poor friends. I had uh, Republican friends and Democratic friends. <laughs> I had Christian friends and, and atheist friends. And, and I think, uh, I think that helped a lot and yep. uh, saw both sides to it. So and now you, now you pride yourself in being able to argue both sides of, of every story or every topic, right? There you go. Exactly. I exactly. even argue with my friends whether I'm from Washington or not anymore. I, uh, <laughs> I spent the first 18 years of my life in Washington, and I've spent the last 17 in Montana, going on 18. And uh, I'm at that. I'm at that. Cro- hey, it's a cross the stream moment when mm-hmm. when I decide when I, I have to officially admit. I think I'm a Montanan now. That's a, that's an interesting perspective. I'm happy to say I've lived in Montana for the last 18 years or 17 years, and uh, I don't see myself going anywhere. So obviously the first part of the interview was just talking about his background, his life story, his where he grew up, his family background, which there was some definite similarities with myself mm-hmm. and obviously with you as well, Kip. Mm-hmm. But tell me what struck you the most. The thing that really stood out to me is kind of a self-reflection of my own, you know, and like you mentioned our own upbringing mirrors Eggert so much, but I, I when you're growing up, you don't really describe yourself either as sheltered and exposed, living hard or living easy. You don't really think about that. You just go about your day. Uh, but what he mentioned where, you know, he was exposed to Republicans and Democrats. He was exposed to atheists and heavy, heavily religious people, white people and minorities. You know, I, I think a lot of us would probably say, boy, that's, I, I like what he said. Said. It was sheltered because he was he felt safe. You know, I think Billings, Montana, was the same for us. You felt safe, but at the same time, you felt like you got a taste of the world, um, and you weren't living in a you know a monotone color or socioeconomic or religious belief area where no one thought differently than the next person. Um, I, I think that probably not only shaped Eggert, but probably shaped us into you know our way of going about analyzing things is to think about both sides of the coin because we did we were lucky enough to experience both. I would agree where. Because of our upbringing, because of our background uh, with where our dad is from originally and, and really mm-hmm. uh, our mom bouncing around a little bit as a, as a, a young person as well and, and us getting a chance to travel to different places outside of Montana and, and seeing a lot of different things, right? I think helped shape our mindset and shape our viewpoints mm-hmm. completely different than a lot of other folks that we grew up around because we, we yep. were exposed to some things that they weren't necessarily exposed to. On a regular basis, yeah, and, I, like and I think that I think, like you said, the right word is different. We didn't necessarily say better, you know, because you know exactly. we're going to Los Angeles and we're we're going to go visit Dad's best friend and college roommate Sam Sullivan in the, in the middle of of Watts, and somebody else is going to go to Cooney Dam or whatever it is. It doesn't necessarily mean we're right and they're wrong. It just means we absolutely will have a different picture of something uh, when that conversation comes up between those two people. So um, I would not. I would. I've always been a told people I would never trade growing up in Billings, Montana. It was awesome. Uh, but at the same time, I'm glad we did have a father from another country and we did have a mom, a cowgirl that was from a bunch of different states and was used to traveling and want us to, wanted to put us in the Chevy Citation in the Aerostar <laughs> and drive us all over the world because I, I think we did, we did get to see a lot more things than maybe the usual kid from Billings uh, gets to see. And we didn't have iPads and, and other things in, in the back of that uh, Chevy Citation. How did we do it? Honestly, how did it, how did it even through happen? the 12-hour <laughs> trip, the 14-hour drive. Well, that's a whole nother way yeah. back when segment. Yep. Moving on, we skip forward and we start talking a little bit of this transition from Cheney, Washington to Bozeman, Montana. So when did you make that move officially from 
Cheney, Washington, over here to Montana? I made that after my senior year in high school. I came out uh, on a recruiting trip, got to meet a guy named Kane Ione on the same recruiting trip. Life-changing life experience, I'm sure. It was, it was a life-changing experience going to the, uh, the filling station and watching the Clintons play Sweet Home Montana <laughs> all night. In six or seven years, I've still never been back to the filling. And I kind of never want to go back in because I want to keep that streak alive. You know, it was I was in Bozeman for like six, seven straight years, and and never stepped foot back in that place, yeah. and still well, had a great time. I was going to say the that's, we were there. You can say from this point on in your life that you had one of the best times ever at the filling station. You're one for one. You're a hundred percent at the right. filling station. So why go back there and ruin that? It's never going to live up to its own to your own expectations or standards now. So I, that's a we, great idea as far as staying out of the filling station from this point on. I mean, you, me, stop. Scott Turnquist, Ryan Johnson, and Pat some, Karahassan. Pat Karahassan, Farhad Azimi. But yeah, it was a it was a great night. So, so was, uh, let me ask you this: as far as making that choice, making that decision, and this mm-hmm. might go down as, as one of your things in, in your as far as cross the stream moments in life, making that choice to leave Cheney, Washington, and make the six and a half seven hour drive or flight, however you did it initially, to Bozeman, Montana. Tell me about that decision, that choice. Yeah, that was it was a big moment in in my life. I still remember it. You know, it was a Saturday morning when Mike Kramer called. Uh, uh, my my dad had left him a message, let him know that I was I was uh, going to be going to UC Davis at that point was the plan, and hmm. uh, had been kind of accepted there. And Coach Smith had had told me he wanted me to come down, and then Kramer. Uh, called my dad back on a Saturday morning and uh, my dad comes downstairs and says, hey, uh, somebody wants to talk to you. And Krams told me, you know, you don't want to go to UC Davis. You don't want to play Division II football, blah, blah, blah. And and he's a salesman. I knew Montana State had a good biomechanics program for what I had researched. And um, that was what I wanted to major in. Came out on a, ret- on a trip like we talked about, met you. Um, and that was it. That was the first time I had really been in Montana. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was a big moment. It was a I knew I wanted to get away from home, though. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I knew I couldn't stay in Cheney. I couldn't do that thing. My I wanted to get away. I wanted to have some distance between yeah, my please. my family. And because and, I, I was more independent than my brother. I wanted to okay. be away and do my own thing and, and kind of mm-hmm. figure things out myself, which is always my personality and learning style. I didn't like yeah. listening to people too much. So again, there's some similarities between ourselves, but this time around, it was really similar to you more than me. Yeah. No, just having that. I, I, when he was talking about, obviously, like you mentioned to the listeners, if you don't know, he's Cheney's that's Eastern. That's that's this home hometown school, um, and for me that was when I was recruited by Montana State Billings, which obviously was Eastern Montana College when our dad played there. And despite you know having a great campus and being a Division two program, the full ride scholarship, I distinctly remember that phone call when I said, "Hell no, Coach Hatler, I really respect you as the lead assistant recruiting coordinator. I remember watching you as a basketball player. You're a legend, but I'm getting the hell out of Montana." And that mm-hmm. that was just in my brain. You know, not like we yeah. mentioned earlier, not because Montana sucks. Montana's awesome. But I was determined to get out. When Edgar was talking about that mindset, you can't really explain it to a coach. It's hard to. Uh, but there was no change in my mind on that subject. And I think it's it's important for everyone to be self-aware. And I think that's one common theme throughout this interview that I, I take is being self-aware of what yeah. you really want. And Brandon was very clear that he didn't want that. He wanted to get away from his family, away from friends, and really set out on his own. 
would we give to to for a recruit to be as a like? Here's my number one goal. I'm Kane Iona. I want to play D1. Location's not going to matter. That that would change yep. your entire recruiting philosophy. If I was like, hey, that's Kip Iona. That guy wants to leave Montana. If you're a Montana school, you know to cross me off the list. If you're not, you know it's fair game. I think, like you mentioned, self awareness is is a lot of a lot of young kids struggle with that because they're not really sure yet. Um, and that, that yep. makes that makes our job in recruiting. That's why it's such an inexact science because we I don't think they know half the time when we're trying to diagnose what their top three things are for school. Hell, they don't know. <laughs> they don't know, and they've got too many people telling them what they should know. Yep, right. Or what they should do. Too many outside right. influences pulling them in this direction, telling them they should do this, that, and this. So I uh, I knew I wanted to get my master's. That was the plan. I was a biomechanics mm-hmm. major in my undergrad. That was my focus. And then I, I thought that I, you know, the plan was I was going to get my master's and then hopefully go land a job at Nike, work, work in the biomechanics lab and do shoe design research. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted mm-hmm. to, I wanted to design. It still drives me absolutely nuts that defensive ends and wide receivers on mass amounts of football teams, including probably the University of Washington Huskies, wear the same cleats. There could not be more different movements happening between those two positions, and they wear identically shaped speed TD cleats of some sort, <laughs> and they, they just want the lightest, fastest, and it doesn't matter. It, it drives me nuts. It's the side yeah. of my brain that I can't turn off. Yeah. Um, but what I realized after I got done with my um, bachelor's and my master's was that I couldn't do somebody else's research. I couldn't spend the first 10 years of my life, which is what I found out that that job entailed was doing somebody else's work. And I knew that if I ended up getting stuck working for somebody that I felt to be bluntly honest, wasn't as intelligent as I am, uh, I would have had a lot of problem with that. I've had a lot of problem with that exact thing my entire life. I got in a lot of trouble in school uh, for that type of thing and voicing that opinion to my teachers, whether it was me being frustrated with them for not being smart enough, in my opinion, (laughs) as a second grader or third grader, um, or being frustrated with my team members. If we got put into groups for team assignments, I hated group projects with a passion. Um, (laughs) Somehow that does not surprise me one bit. I could see you being the guy that no one in the class wanted to work with. That makes total sense to me. And not hundred percent, unless they were the, unless they were the worst kids, like then, then my teachers would pair me up with them. Right. <laughs> and, and they would know if they paired me up with somebody else that was, you know, it had good critical thinking skills and ideas about how they wanted to do this project or presentation or whatever, then them and I would argue and we would disagree on things and not a whole lot would get mm-hmm. done. But I feel like teachers knew if they stuck me with the kids that didn't do well and didn't participate, I would just tell them, look, you guys just, I'm going to hand you note cards and you read what's on the card and don't <laughs> screw this up for me. Cause I'm not going to have oh, you an- being the anchor to my, you know, my sailboat or whatever, some stupid line <laughs> like that. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was bad. I think that I've learned to uh, be a little better about that. I haven't improved much, though, over the last you know, years. <laughs> yeah, I can see where you're not afraid of confrontation. That's one thing that I, I actually really appreciate. Well, we learned something really, uh, <laughs> which I've always known about Brandon Eggert, is that he is not afraid of confrontation. He is a guy that is very independent, very much about doing it his way or the highway, essentially. 
And it, it sounds like he knew this from a very young age, back in <laughs> elementary, when his elementary school teachers wouldn't allow him to work with others because he didn't work well with others. Right. And um, I think, again, it goes back to self-awareness and understanding that about yourself. But it's, it's definitely something that I've always appreciated about him is that he is not afraid of confrontation. And I thought it was awesome when he talked about just he knew coming out, I mean, he went through his bachelor's degree, got a master's degree, and then realized, I don't want to work for somebody else that I deem beneath me or not as intelligent as myself. And I think that's, yeah, I, I, could, I was thinking to myself how much I used to have anxiety about working in groups in school, not because I didn't like people, had a lot of friends, enjoyed. I did not want to have to rely on Johnny to get something done that I knew Johnny was going to F up. And if that was about to F up my grade, I was going to lose my mind. So mm -hmm. when Eggert was talking about that in his life, boy, I was just sitting back smiling because I've been there. <laughs> I know it. And it, like you mentioned, there's a lot of good in that. There's a lot of there's a lot of positives. Like if you're that type of personality, you can drive results. Um, you keep a workplace moving forward no matter what it is because you're constantly moving forward. Now the challenge comes, and I've learned this yes. myself, is how do you not necessarily put the reins on yourself but find a way to not scare off the help that you do need. Because no matter how intelligent we all are, no matter how driven we all are, and obviously we know Eggert is both of those things, you still need people. And mm -hmm. whether you're a coach, whether you run your own business and have employees, whether you're a teacher and you have a classroom, whether you're a father with three children, it's the challenge in that type of, of personality is how do I – encourage others to get on board with this bold action I want and then find a way to have the patience to let them get there. And that's, that's a daily source of staying up late. Word in that, in that sentence right there, patience. Yes. Patience. The key word is patience. And that's one thing that Eggert will even admit to him to us later on in this interview, that patience is not something that he has a, an abundance right. of. And I can see that in a lot of people that have this dominant type personality and dominant mm -hmm. type trait, which, uh, like you said, it's a, it's a great thing. You're, you're always moving forward. You're always trying to get better. But it's the patience to work well with others that's going to help you along the way, like you said. So, yeah, And uh, I think again, even other... like you and I in doing this show, like I'm, I'm the guy on the show that wants to bang out 42 segments, slap them together and get it out there. And quality may or may not be where it's supposed to be. And thank God that you were like, hey, listen, we need to edit 12 of those pretty yeah. intently. And both of us want the show to be great. And we just mm -hmm. have different te tempos different like purpose. Kelly talks about all the time. If you walk with Kip and Kane in a mall, Kip's in front, not walking with anybody. Kane's behind, not walking with anybody. <laughs> they both end up at the store. It, somehow, some way, we end up with the with the same end result, but we yep. just get them a lot different way, exactly. a lot different fashion. That's exactly. a, that's a that's a great analogy. Wow, that well now done. That's, think about it. Like that's her when we're ask Carrie. Like if we're at the zoo and we say we're going to mm -hmm. go to the elephants, I'm going to be there 12 minutes for anybody, and I'm going to mm -hmm. be pissed off that nobody else is there. Where yep. are they? What are they doing? Mm -hmm. They're going to get know, there when I, they were supposed to, and you'll be there yeah. about four minutes later. You brought hot dogs for everybody. Exactly. <laughs> But in the end, we all get to see the elephant one exactly. way. Exactly. Oh, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> this next part of the interview, uh, we transition again from him figuring out that he doesn't want to work for Nike. He doesn't want to work for someone else and kind of start talking a little bit about where he went into the coaching business or profession and where he found himself not wanting to be in the coaching profession. 
So as I was working on my master's, I was coaching with Mr. Kane Ione and uh, a number of other really talented football coaches at Montana State that 05 season, 2005. Mm-hmm. And we got done there. And it was kind of a mass exodus that happened after that season. Pete left for left for Boise State. Jimmy left yep. for Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, and I ended up moving on to Billings. I had a good friend who I'd worked for who owned a furniture store there in, in Bozeman and was buying a, the Billings location, asked me to go down and manage it for him. And, and it was at that point that I realized I didn't think I had the patience for coaching either, which is the same reason I didn't become an educator like the rest of my family. Literally, my yeah, entire yeah. family is middle school teachers. Yeah, so, I was going to ask you about that, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. You mentioned your mom and dad are educators. you got a bunch of educators in your family. Your, your brother's an educator, very similar to my own family. We're, we're just a bunch of educators, teachers, coaches, all across the board there. You jumped right. out of that lane. You created your own path. How were you able to do that? I I think uh, I think it just came back to my that that personality that I wanted to do things on my own. I I was big on having my own job when I was a, when I was you know a teenager. I wanted to have my own money. I wanted to make my own way. I kind of wanted to. Um, I felt like if my parents weren't if it wasn't their money that they were giving to me, they couldn't tell me how I could spend it. I was I was big on in, being independent mm-hmm. um, and doing things on my own. And, uh, not that, not that I've done everything on my own by any means. There's been a lot, I've had a lot of help along the way, but I, I like that feeling of independence and I like the responsibility of if it's, if, you know, if I fail at something, it's on me, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to blame it on somebody else. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I knew that, that, uh, you know, the, the coaching world, was there was a, there's a, an odd similarity between the coaching world and the military world in my mind. And mm-hmm. it seems mm-hmm. a lot, it, it seems like it's about a lot of paying your dues, making, there's guys that will get, you know, opportunities at situations because not because of what they know, but because of how long they may have been doing it. There's assumptions mm-hmm. that yeah. this guy, because he's done, he's been to these places is obviously a better coach than this yeah. other guy. And again, coming from where, being in the business world now and, and running my own company and, and looking at things uh, from that perspective, it boggles my mind that an industry with as well um, job security as there is in college football coaching, the fact that you would hire the person that is either A, just has a better resume, or B, is somebody's friend, mm-hmm. somebody knows them, as opposed to the guy that comes in and wows everybody in that interview mm-hmm. because he just can flat out coach. He can flat, or, or he wow, you know, his, re- when, when you call his, his references, they're just like, look, if you don't hire this guy, you're an idiot. Like, yeah. this is the guy. When guys like that get passed over for jobs, and and it happens at every level. I mean, guy, there's yep. guys that they knew were ready to be O coordinators, and they weren't given that opportunity because it wasn't their turn. Um, if you are that close to having everybody lose their job, I feel like it's an obligation of a, a head coach and an athletic director and an o- offensive coordinator, defense coordinator to, you know, whoever's in charge of hiring that spot, whatever it may be, you have an obligation to everybody else's wives and the kids and everybody else that's affected when a whole staff gets fired to hire the best coach. You would hear, I heard story after story, just being in it for a year of that happening over and over where the best coach wasn't hired. 
for the mm-hmm. position. And I'm going, this is not for me. I'm going to offend everybody in this entire <laughs> world because I can't keep my mouth shut when I see something like that. And hindsight's always twenty twenty, but there's uh, there's aspects of that industry that, that drove me nuts, just seeing it a little bit there. And I said, same reason I couldn't go into the military out of high school. I can't, I can't keep my mouth shut. And when people tell me to do something, I want to know why we're doing it. And mm-hmm. I was a why kid, and and that doesn't work well in, in in the military, and it probably doesn't work too well in, uh, in the coaching world either, um, especially when you're new on a staff. So <laughs> I moved on to I moved on to the business world, and uh, I had a very understanding owner that I worked for who used to tell me, Brandon, you're uh, you're either you're either going to be a millionaire or you're going to uh, you're going to get you're going to get both of us in, sent to prison. And uh, I think that's the that's a compliment of the highest order, right there. I like to always be uh, thinking and talking and and analyzing and looking for for ways and pushing boundaries. Just you know, I I thank my parents for raising me in a very moral household. Because if I hadn't been, I think I would have ended up being a criminal more than anything. Um, <laughs> I have heard a lot of your criminal activity ideas. <laughs> And concepts, and just—it's a good thing I don't go through with them, huh? I, I agree. I, some of them are really sound really good and very <laughs> tempting because you've literally thought out every single detail. So, having actually worked with Brandon during that year of his coaching stint, I can verify everything that he said as his frustrations with the profession are concerned. Because I've felt those frustrations. Uh, coming through him on a daily basis, whether it was in a staff meeting, whether it was when we were in the back uh, breaking down an offense together and, and he was communicating or verbalizing his fr- frustrations to me about the why. He constantly <laughs> wanted to know why. He constantly yeah. was asking, what are we doing this for? Why are we doing this? Why aren't we doing it this way? He was always trying to think outside the box yeah. at the time I was going just shut up and let's just get this work done. <laughs> no, and you're right. Like, looking back at it. Yeah. He probably drove going, some yeah. new age thinking and, and adjustments. And there's like, mm-hmm. once again, like we mentioned before, it's that balance of driving for results quickly. And then if you can get the right partner or group of people to slow you down just enough to make sure it's quality, Great things can happen in the industry we exist in, where a lot of it is, as he mentioned in that segment, um, it's a time-punched based promotion. I put in 12 years, and even though none of them were very good, I'm going to get the job before you, even though your ideas might be more sound. I can see that driving a D, like Eggert, myself, and many other people out there, insane. Um, and in looking for taking a step back from our industry, we probably don't do the best job of doing the, of, of evaluating who's the coach and who isn't. Um, sometimes it is a buddy-based system. Sometimes it is a crony-based system. Um, and probably not enough of our processes we use is merit-based or, hey, I need you to be a recruiter. I'm going to watch you talk on the phone or I'm going to watch you create a calendar for a kid that gets it to us rather than this guy told me you're a recruiter and I've known him since we drank together 12 years ago, so then you're in. But that, you know, it's, it's hard to change it from the outside, so you got to be inside doing some of that work. I, I like that idea as far as during an interview process, actually listening to someone have a phone conversation with a recruit. I don't know if you can actually do that via NCAA right. rules and violations. Obviously, there's a lot of coaches in my profession on the football side of things that we get them on the board and we put them through uh, extensive 
interview in that way. But uh, I agree with you 100% where a lot of times there isn't even really an interview. I've got an opening on my staff. This is a good friend of mine or this is a person that I've gotten to know over the course of the years. I don't really know if he's a great coach or not. I just know him as a person. I want to hire him. Let's go. I would be anxious to see or interested to see is the better word to put it if that happens in the business world, which I'm sure it yeah. does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a, um, you mentioned that because one of my former players told me, I'll tell a quick story in an interview for an international automo- automaker. He got the interview based on a connection. Like a lot of us, I know this person, he'll get me in front of the right person. But when he got there, he was put in a group of five people. There were three teams of five, and they were all given a problem the company had faced in the past and had solved, but they didn't tell them the solution they came up with. And they said, you have three hours. We'll be back. Solve the problem. <laughs> and then they hired the group that solved it. Wow. Right? When I was like, that's unbelievable. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Probably one of the more stressful interviews you can imagine being in. But holy cow, you probably got the right people because they had to work in a group. They had to solve a problem. They had to do it in a time crunch in a very stressful situation to get a paycheck or not. I don't know how else you recreate the job you're hiring them for. Now, I'm sure that's not the – I don't know if that's the norm, but I remember this former player of mine telling me this story, and he's still with that company moving up. And I was like, Jace, please send me that. She sent me every – just packets of how you guys created that interview because it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. That, that's awesome. You want to do that with your players in yeah. practice. It's trying yeah, to that's, what, that's why we practice, right? Things. Exactly. Those type of stressful situations that you can do all the different drills and, and preparation you want and tell them about this, that, and, but until they're actually in that situation, it's, it's right. who knows what you're going to get from them. You really can't yeah. tell unless you actually throw them to the fire. Yep. Um, the next part of it, we transition again. We're another cross the stream moment for Brandon. And he talks about going from the coaching world to the sales world and then into the IT world. So I did that for about six years, up to about 2010. And about mid-2010, I knew I needed to get make a change. Uh, wanted to get out of, uh, wanted, to, wanted to get to a kind of a more of a Monday to Friday. Uh, wanted to get out of retail, have some weekends off. Um, mm-hmm. Then kind of moved into the IT world. And I moved in there because uh, let, there's a cross the stream moment. I can remember it yeah. exactly. Um, had a conversation with a gentleman who owned a cabling company who had done the network cabling for our new building we were building uh, that when I was working at Slumberland. And I was also the resident IT guy for Slumberland. Um, talked him through how I wanted everything laid out. I had known enough to be dangerous when it came to networking and computer uh, setups. And ultimately, I had walked him through how I wanted everything set up. And I think he thought I was fairly intelligent from that perspective. And then I sold him and his wife some furniture. And as we were getting done, he said, Hey, let me talk to you. And he told me uh, very honestly um, that I was in the wrong business. And I was <laughs> like, that seems odd. Cause I, you, I just sold you guys a big old living room set. And he said, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of good salespeople out there. There's also a lot of very good it guys. Um, there's nobody who knows it like that combination just doesn't exist very often. And he said, you get into the IT world and you will do very, very well. I took that to heart. And after thinking about it over about a year, year and a half, we had talked about it a couple of times. I told him, start passing my resume around. I'm ready to make a change. And took my very first interview off of that resume that had been, that he had sent around with a gentleman named Mike Keen at Entree. 
and uh, started up with, with Entree Technology Services and a lot of growth over the first four to five years that I was there, along with another gentleman who was an engineer at the time, but had, before he'd become an engineer, had sold uh, telecom services over the phone in Chicago during the deregulation days and made a bunch of money doing that. And he and I worked well together. He, I was the optimist. I was the idea guy and I would sling mud at a wall and he would decide <laughs> what stuck and what didn't um, from an IT solution standpoint. And we, we figured out how to work together and kind of play off of each other. And, and we were responsible for a decent amount of improvement to the company. And uh, a couple of years ago, about almost a, uh, just over two years ago, he and I bought the company from the, the, the owner at the time. Uh, from Mike, who was ready to retire. Again, another cross the stream moment. Everything I had saved, you know, I have a few rental properties and things like that that I'd done okay with, um, you know, had to put it all on the line to go and, and get that done. And yeah, it's worked out. All right. So again, just to recap a little bit on that one, Eggert goes from coaching into the sales at Slumberland Furniture. And I've Great heard day. this guy, I have heard this guy sell and he can sell He's a <laughs> really good salesman. He was, I've seen him at my uh, garage sales, selling my old t-shirts for a ridiculous price and getting people to buy into it. Cause so he's got skills in the sales world, but again, being self-aware, he realized, Hey, I don't want to be in retail my whole life. Mm-hmm. I'm not about working weekends and, and, I'm not as I may be a good salesman, but that's not what I want to do the rest of my life. Cross the stream moment. Yeah. Which I I found this to be awesome and very interesting where he runs into a guy that he's literally selling furniture to and at the same time talking to him about how they want their IT network. Yeah, their network network within the store. And the guy is going, wow, man, you, you know your stuff as far as the IT world is concerned. And you just sold me a dining room set or living room set or wherever it was. That's a hell of a combo. And isn't it interesting? Like, and we, I'm sure you preach this, you guys, to your players. You teach it to your kids. Like, you never know who you're talking to. So just be a nice person. And that's hard to do throughout the course of your day, in your weeks, in your years, because people might catch you at the wrong place, the wrong time. But Eggert, I mean, imagine you if you would have told them, hey, today one of your sales is going to transform your life because he's going to give you an idea. I mean, he'd be like, yeah, sure. I, I sell dining room furniture and I do that a lot and nobody's changed my life. This case, it did. I mean, it absolutely did that just having the normal conversations you would have in a day and actually genuinely listening and contributing to it with another person turned into a connection that helped him cross the street. It's, it's an awesome story. That, that's a lesson right there in itself. Just respecting people enough, making sure everyone you come across feels important and that interaction is important to you at the time that you're having it and you never know what may come of that interaction. And in Agard's case, he ends up uh, into a whole different right. stream, a whole different path as far as his IT world is concerned. And then next thing you know, he's taking this risk in buying this business yeah. with his, his partner and, and now is the owner of this um, Entree uh, Technologies in Billings, Montana. Can we get Agard? And I know we got him already on a segment called Crack the Egg that we'll talk about later, but can we get Eggert on the egg sells furniture or the egg sells snow to an Eskimo? The egg just sells <laughs> because I would be, I would love to hear the, the intellect that he has selling me a bed because I'm sure he would convince me that one night on that and I'd wake up the smartest coach in America. And in reality, egg, that's yeah. what he does when he argues. He's selling something. <laughs> 
every time he argues with you. Moving on to the next segment, we've got Agert now transitioning to the IT world. He's about to buy this business, and he kind of goes through his process of risk. As Kane knows about <laughs> me, not only am I an arguer, but I'm also a gambler. As much as you you, you are a gambler, you will take risks. <laughs> I like our good buddy voice says, scared money don't make money. You're there you go. very calculated in your risks when it comes to important things. When it comes to gambling in Vegas and rolling the dice on a craps table, that's one thing. But when it comes to gambling in right. life and, and <laughs> crossing the streams, it's calculated. I have a different approach. It comes back to me being a... a science and research-based student and, and getting my major and working on my master's in, in, a, in a research-based field. And everything in, in science is, if and I, and I do this with everything um, that's, that's important, I do it with things that aren't important. But when we were looking to buy the business, I fall back on the scientific method. And anybody who doesn't believe in the scientific method, I would gladly have a nice <laughs> long discussion with. And what, well, I don't think a lot of people understand the basis of the, the scientific method. If, if I have a hypothesis out there that say, uh, that, that's, for instance, when I, we were looking to buy the business, it was my, my hypothesis is this is a good investment, right? This is mm-hmm. that I should buy this business because it's going to be profitable, mm-hmm. right? The way to answer that question correctly is not to try and come up with all the ways why it's profitable. When you want to be grounded in that scientific method, what you have to do is disprove the null hypothesis. And mm-hmm. what that means is I'm not trying to prove that this business is profitable. I'm trying to take the null hypothesis, meaning this business is not profitable. And then I'm going to take every way, I'm going to disprove all the ways that it can be not profitable. First first way, we could, you know, what if we lose clients? Great. I'm going to pull our last four years of, of information and I'm going, to, I'm going to explain to our business advisor and accountant that this is how many clients we had in 2011. This is how many clients we have in 2015. And in that course, we have retained every single client or 99% of those clients that were clients in 2011 are still clients. So yeah. not only are we growing our client base, but we're retaining retaining those those current clients at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I've got 48 months of good data that says that we're not going to lose clients. Great. Well, what if we have an economic downturn? So boom, I, I go back to the 2008, 2009, 2010 years. And here's the thing about the technology services world. It's not money that our, that our clients are looking at as discretionary dollars. It's yeah. not things that they cut in tight times. People will cut an advertising budget. People will cut benefits. They'll cut pay. They'll cut, you know, spent, you know, capital expenditures, but you don't cut your power bill, your electricity bill, your, you, you, there's certain things they look at as utilities. These are the basis on what our business runs on. And if you own a CPA firm, you need your computers and servers to run all the time. Mm-hmm. Same thing if you're a college football coach, you need your Exos system or whatever system you're using for film review and analysis to yes. work all the time. All the time. It, 100% if it's down, it we're down. You guys are absolutely screwed. Yes. That's my industry. It is a non, it is a non-discretionary spending item. It is one of the last things that ever gets looked at on a budget as far as looking to cut it back. We went through and itemized out all those things that could make this a not profitable decision. Mm-hmm. And, and we tried to disprove each and every one of those. And if you disprove all the ways that you can fail, then all that's left is to succeed. 
And that's mm-hmm. what the scientific method is based in. It's, it's, if you can disprove all the, all the nulls, right, all the opposites uh, of all the reasons that it could be the opposite of what you're thinking, you can only be left with one conclusion. And I feel like if you do that in anything – you're you're going to be grounded in the information and ultimately that's that's what i do in a lot of things we we look at problems or how we want to grow and and analyze them and try to come up with quality data and kind of go from there man that's awesome that's good stuff i think for me just the takeaway from all that is i love just what you said at the end there as far as disproving all the reasons that you could fail and it leaves you nothing but success yep. in front of you right i think that's, that's awesome And it sounds to me like that's kind of how you go about life to a certain extent. So talking about calculated risk, talking about this scientific method, I thought it was awesome. Kit, what did you think of, or what did you, what was your takeaway on that? I, it was such a, like, cause you remember, all of us remember in a science class in elementary school, junior high, high school, in college, you hear about the, the method and you're going to have a hypothesis and you're going to, you're going to test it. But I, I never, I never thought of that in terms of disprove the null. And when he talked about that, where you go about disproving all the ways you could fail, and if you are able to disprove all those, all you have less left is reasons to succeed. I mean, literally, if my mind was like a cartoon, it would have just blown. <laughs> because that's like even like designing an offense for basketball. The theory is we're going to score the most points, but we go about trying to prove all the ways we'll make a basket, and we we don't pay attention to the things that are holding us back from doing so. If we went about disproving all the ways people can stop us, at the end, all we're left with is ways we're going to score. (laughs) I mean, come on. What have I been doing? That's why we finished eighth in offense last year, because I wasn't using Eggert's scientific method adjusted. Disproved? Mm -hmm. No. It was awesome. I went home, yelled at my wife about it. I tried to tell my staff and the staff meeting about it tonight. Everybody's looking like I'm crazy. And I said, just wait, cross the streams. When the episode comes up, Edgar's going to explain everything. (laughs) Which he did. (laughs) Which he did. He went in very in-depth and detailed as far as his process and and proving to himself, really, and to everybody else that would listen about why he needed to do what he was going to do as far as uh, buying the business and and, – I thought it was awesome. He lost me probably probably (laughs) seconds into the actual details of it. But again, I thought just the overall, just disproving any way that you can fail Mm -hmm. and all you have left is ways to succeed. I think that's just an awesome way to go about life when it's all said and done. Wouldn't that be such a freeing way to do things? Because then you remove all the anxiety, all the worry. You know, mm. you, you already went about that. And I'm sure Eggert, being as smart as he is, his disproving of the knoll is quicker than most than the rest of mm. us. But mm. it also talks what you and I have talked about before. Just do shit. Sorry. Yeah. Just, just, just do things. And if you have this process you use and you've got it down to where you can measure three to four failures and you disprove them, you can go about your day getting things done. With mm-hmm. pretty high confidence that, man, I'm gonna, I got a big smile on my face. I'm going to go have dinner and be cool. We already got mm-hmm. rid of all the ways we can fail. We're set up. Yeah. Like you said, just doing things is yep. the first step. Yep. And that's the hardest step. Mm-hmm. Yep. And a lot of people miss that first step and, and just they don't do it. They've got right. great ideas and never really take that first step towards that great idea. 
Right. And I think well, that we just we're trying look to at us with this, this podcast. podcast. That's we it. did the same thing. Just, hey, can we? Is there a way we couldn't get picked up by iTunes? No, not really. Is there a way we couldn't have it stored online for people to get? No, as long as you get SoundCloud, you're fine. Exactly. What's what's holding you back from doing yep. what you want to do? So here we are, four or five episodes in, still doing it. All right. So the last main portion of the interview, we kind of go back, and, and obviously with the scientific method that he talked about, disproving the null, only ways to succeed. Eggert specifically states that yes, I do that on a regular basis, but that doesn't prevent me from failing. I still fail. I've still failed plenty of times in my life. At that same time, I fail all the time, and you learn <laughs> from those <laughs> from those uh, experiences, and you try to not make the same mistakes. And it's yeah. the same thing I talk about with clients all day long. Is you know, I tell them when they when we first sign a new client, I say, "Hey, we're gonna make mistakes. It's mm-hmm. going to happen. What we're gonna try to do is try to make it right." When we make a mistake, we're going to try and make you whole or make it right with you from either a time perspective or a financial perspective. But then on top of that, we're going to, more important than anything is we're going to try to not make that same mistake another time. And we're going to try mm-hmm. to get better every day. And there you go. And that's probably some of the coaching parts that I, you know, the things that I've taken from coaching yeah. and playing into that and being the son of a coach of a whole family of coaches is, <laughs> you know, just improving a little bit every day and you're going to do, you're going to be better the next day. That's 100%. pretty much what it is. Um, and the, the little things, the details that, that go into doing those, those things every day. Right. Right. And that's, and, and that's that, you know, I, I say it all the time, you know, around the office and I, I'm sure my my coworkers and employees get uh, frustrated with me, but I just <laughs> I, I just tell everybody, would you just worry about your job? Don't try and do my job for me. Do your job, <laughs> and we'll be fine. Okay, I love when that. I lose my mind with that, and and when I have three people that are between the three of them, something was supposed to be taken care of, and it didn't get taken care of, and I feel like feel like I use. that's again, where I make mistakes. I get angry. I can't help it. They know it. I'll, I'll walk out and slam a door after saying, geez, this is day one stuff here and we can't get this figured out and other coaching, you know, synonyms or phrases or things like that. And so coaching cliches come out a little bit, huh? Coaching cliches. Yep. This is day one (laughs) stuff. And we're in, we're in day 30 here. Let's get going. Um, Oh, that's classic, man. You, no matter if you're in the business for a little bit, if you're in the coaching profession just for a little bit, doesn't matter how long or how short or if you have a family of coaches, you can't get away from the coaching cliches. It, it just is what it is. That's very true. My girlfriend um, about lost it when we were playing a game of Eggert family basketball a couple of weeks ago at the, the lake cabin. And it was we decided to go girls versus boys. And my Aunt Jeannie, who was a heck of a basketball player in her day, um, told uh, told my girlfriend Allie, who was a good basketball player in her day as well, she had said something to my my cousin about being an athlete, and she had also told Allie earlier in the day when she was trying to get her up on some on two skis, which she she did successfully. Just she goes, now be an athlete, and I've said that a million times around uh, around the house or just when we're doing whatever. I'm like, oh, just be an athlete, and oh, I think classic. she was about to lose it on the whole Eggert family after that comment. Oh, I love it. That is so classic. So. The, yep. That is that's a classic cliche cliche yeah. right there. Just be, be an, an athlete. athlete. Just be yeah. an athlete. How, what does that mean? How how can you just be I, an athlete? Just 
Right then and there. Such Be an a, athlete. Oh, okay. Such a technical talking point, dude. Wow, what <laughs> what great coaching insight you just gave exactly. me there. That's yeah. a great oh. fundamental of any athletic sport or anything you're doing. Hey, bottom line, be an athlete. So that's and, simple. We, and we all know those guys or those friends, or you've probably had those players, and they go, oh, now I get it. Oh, be an athlete. Yeah. yeah. Got oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. I, why didn't I do that now the I first time, you, coach? Now I got it. I you. didn't realize we were supposed to be athletes out here. <laughs> uh, <it's so> <laughs> There's not many, but when it's you get so that true. guy that is just – or he's saying it to another guy that get, gets told that. I'm like, dude, yeah. see, told you, just be an athlete. It's pretty simple. Exactly. Exactly, <laughs> man. That's classic stuff. So everybody's going to fail. You're, not everything's going to go perfect, obviously. You're not going to live this perfect life where you hit no adversity. But it's about learning from those mistakes, not making the same mistakes, and continuously improving every single day. And those are things that he got from the coaching world and from his playing days and all the yep. coaching that he's been giving his whole life mm-hmm. or, or given his whole life by his parents, by his coaches, by his aunts, his uncles, friends. Uh, but they're things that stick with you. They're lessons that stick with you. And I thought it's awesome to hear him say that he still to this day brings those things to his team, his yep, employees yep. and talks about, Hey, we, we, this, these are first day mistakes that we can't make on day 30. <laughs> And I thought that was so funny to hear. And, and as we talked about in the interview, just those coaching cliches that always still come about. Well, and as, as corny as it sounds, it's absolutely probably why coaches like ourselves are still in this business because we truly believe sports transcends and impacts life, not just because you remember the score of when you beat the Grizz or when I beat Linfield. You remember those lessons. Like I hear myself telling my guys on my team what Gordy told me in his words in 1999. I use my coaching cliches on my kids, your nieces, your niece and nephews, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm coaching them. But it, it applies like it does. You, got, you, you can't get ready to be ready, guys. We got to get in the van to get to daycare on time. We can't get ready to be ready. And I'm just like, oh, no, that's what Gordy <laughs> told me about being ready to shoot the ball off the screen. But he's totally right. It still translates. It still applies to regular everyday living. It carries over. It definitely carries over. And, and that's where I think, again, sports are transformative. Mm-hmm. They're very much transformative, and I think that's what makes them so great. And I think that's why, you, like you said, I choose to be in this profession and choose to do what I do because it, yep. it can make an impact, and I enjoy that more than – obviously, I love competition. I love winning. We all do. Mm-hmm. But to see how you can literally transform them from a young 17-, 18-year-old kid to a 22-, 21-year-old man – and I think if if you if you had a, a gun to my head, well, let me put it this way: if if I could tell a story real quick, a coaching friend of mine passed away, and his funeral was in a, in the gym where he passed away, and the stories it was just a procession of players to the microphone and the coaches that had worked with him, and they we all just repeated his sayings and what he, everything we could remember him saying, his coaching cliches, his Bruce-isms, and it was the greatest celebration. And I'm sure somewhere he was smiling down. And if that happens for me and my players just come up and talk about, you know, remember what Coach Kip used to always say, X, Y, Z, that's, then he did something. 
You know, they, they hopefully they the don't. Come up. Yeah, I don't want them to quote my record, not because it's not very good right now, but <laughs> I want them, I want them to remember those things that we said to them uh, that that stuck with them, and then not yep. the assignment of how to guard the shooting guard from Whitman. I want them to remember something else. Hey, listen, Brandon, I, I appreciate your time, man, and I think this was a lot. There's a lot of good stuff. Whether you're in the business world, whether you're in sales, whether you're a coach, a teacher, a whatever you're doing out there, there's some stuff that I, that I think you could take from this from Brandon's story, and that's what we're all about here on Across the Streams. But again, thanks, Brandon, for being on here, my man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, wild card round. We haven't had one of these in a while on Cross the Stream podcast, but wild card is a subject that one of us came up with probably driving home from work or laying in bed after a practice and just thinking about something that struck us. And if the other one was still in the house living with us, we'd probably spend all night talking about it. So I came up with this one this week, and I, it's, it, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it. It's kind of the Shawshank Redemption category where mm. these are mm. movies for anyone out there that Kane and I were up late or in the middle of the day let's say we're eating cereal before we go to practice and it's like oh my gosh this movie's on i've seen it a hundred times but i'm gonna keep watching it even though i know it line for line and there's so many out there I've, I've been in that situation up late with the kids and they're sleeping and i'm still awake and let, let's just take for example one that came on last week old school with will ferrell mm-hmm. And every Classic. time the will the champagne, if I hit it on the champagne ceremony at the first wedding, I mean, uh, or I hit it at the fraternity when they come up and they first get the house and it's the earmuffs, I'm gonna watch the rest of the movie. Done. End of discussion. That, that's a great start. I, I like old school. <laughs> I think that's, a, that's a one that you can't miss. And if you turn it on whatever channel, TBS, TNT, even yep. yeah, I'm a guy that can I can't watch movies with commercials anymore oh okay but these movies of what we're talking about yep are movies that even with commercials i can still watch because they're that good and i and i appreciate them that much yeah so you started with with old school old will school. ferrell don't, don't don't apologize to me apologize to the kid all you gotta do is say your muffs <laughs> <laughs> oh it's a great line Vince Vaughn, will ferrell Vince Vaughn is yep. awesome that one i really and remember my wedding in 2003 that movie had just come out so all oh. of you came my best man all of my groomsmen all they did the entire week of my wedding was quote me vince von reasons to not get married constantly it was, constantly. constantly you need to walk away you need to walk away right now <laughs> oh that was yeah so vince von will ferrell obviously okay. i can list a, a Number of Will Ferrell movies that I will watch, no matter when, no matter how many times I've seen them. Step Brothers is probably oh. the number one for me, though. <laughs> Step Brothers, yes. I can watch that. I've seen that movie, I don't know how many different times, and I will watch that tonight if it's on. And I turn it. <laughs> it is that, that good is... of a movie. It, is, it continuously provides new material. No yes, matter how many times you've seen it, about, you yeah. find yeah, you you find something in the movie that you go, oh my, that is, uh, that's, I'm going to quote that tomorrow. Yep, absolutely. I will watch. I would. I did not watch the new one that came out last year, but I will watch Independence Day 
anytime, anywhere, and I will wait for us to come back and beat the aliens. If mm-hmm. I pick it up in the middle of them blowing up Los Angeles, I'm going to stay through Vivica Fox escaping in the subway that doesn't exist in Los Angeles for real. Will Smith and Harry Connick Jr. fly. I'm going to stay all the way through. Yeah, I'm going to stay. All I'm going to watch it. The, uh, yep. the Bill Pullman speech, yep. Independence Day speech, yep. and Getting then Randy the Quaid tear, flying. Yes, I'm the back. tearjerker moment. Flies <laughs> <Randy laughs> his jet into this the mothership. With his yep. kids listening, and he's telling everybody, "Tell my kids I love them." Cinematic, yep. cinematic brilliance. Oh, that's his. That's a high point. And he is a guy that be- became famous from Lampoon's Vacation, cousin Eddie, but took it mm-hmm. to a whole nother level as that dad, Russell K. Russell K. Sam, sir, keep the coffee coming. Keep the coffee coming. <laughs> I, oh. I love that uh, segue right there into the vacation movies. Yep, and Christmas Vacation. Oh, best move, best one. Every Christmas, you have yep. to watch Christmas Vacation every Christmas. I don't care who you are, you've got to put that DVD or video cassette tape or whatever you have, or stream it. Whatever yep. you do to watch movies, you have to watch Christmas Vacation, Christmas time. <laughs> the rocket's red glare from the grandma as oh. the Santa Claus is exploding through the air because of sewage fumes. Don't push me uh. down, Clark. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a classic movie you have to watch holiday time. Yes. Um, I'm going to give one. you – go ahead. You go, go ahead. So here's one that I'm not proud to say, okay. but I'll say it. Leonardo DiCaprio, I'm a big okay. fan of his, all of his movies. Okay. But this one is not one that, that you think of me and you go, oh, yeah, he, he definitely watched that one. But Do you watch Titanic every time? Titanic is a movie that I can't <laughs> oh, turn off. Yeah. <laughs> I can't turn it off. I don't know why. You know the ending. I know the damn oh. ending. I know the Titanic is going to go down. I know he's not going to get on that little floating dresser or door or yep. whatever it is that they're, that she's on, and he's floating and bobbing up and down in the, in the ocean, freezing to death. I yep. know he's still not going to get up there. I still know the old lady has the necklace and is going to throw it into the ocean at the end of the movie. But I still have to watch it for some reason. It still grabs me and pulls me in. It, it's, uh, it, it's specifically on Hangover Sundays for me. Yeah, Somehow that's that what you do. Shows up and is on. And I'm like, well, here I am. It's, yep. it's a Sunday. I don't feel great. I'm going to sit on this couch and watch Titanic. I, you know my, and I, I don't disagree with the greatness of parts of that movie, but you know my beef with that movie. Since we went to it with our mom, and she made us watch it with her, which was not a great deal. He's got to get on that freaking piece of wood, and I yeah. don't know how she doesn't move him. Oh, I turn it off when the ship splits in two. They crash down, and they're alive. Then I turn it off. Because mm-hmm. I'm so furious. I think I sent you even the meme. I know I sent it to Mike Schwab. The meme where they discuss the fact they've showed nine. Wood. Oh, man. <laughs> Here, I, got a, I got an old school one for you. And this is from yep. our father, Cass Ione. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's on as much anymore. But he made us watch it 10,000 times. And I couldn't name the actor. But you will know the name. Beastmaster. Yes, and he had the two ferrets, the tiger, yes. and he was taking down the the pyramid people and God knows where. <laughs> but we watched Beastmaster fifty eight times at easily. least. I can yeah. tell you right now how the little ferrets sneak through, and you think one of them's dead, and they come popping back up through the crack in the temple. 
They're not both dead. He's got a hawk. He's got yep. the big tiger. I don't he's know if he has a girlfriend, but he's the Beastmaster. If the I beast saw master. that guy right now with his mullet, I would say you're 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 the goddamn Beastmaster. You're and the beast I watched master. your dad love that show. Oh, that one in <laughs> Bruce Lee Enter the Dragon. Oh my I I totally forgot about Bruce Lee. It was all the time. We watched he, that one over and over again. And yes. great movie, classic movie. Yep. But yeah. You're right. We we watched that every felt like every other weekend. That thing was on. <laughs> we, went through it over and over again. Good stuff there. Do you think somebody has a, a like if somebody tracks? And I'm sure with Google we could find it. The most like the movie that is mo- played the most in America today, because Shawshank mm. is always on. I mean, there's got to be like you know what I mean. Like there's all this movie you can watch it if you really want to. Just scroll the channel once every two and a half days, and you mm-hmm. could find <laughs> what, like these top three movies: Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I'm trying yeah. to think. Bruce Almighty's been on a run out here that's just unbelievable. And I don't awesome. you'll get me wrong. I love Jennifer Anderson in that movie, but let's mm-hmm. let's knock it off because it's always uh, on. Do you got I some? Agree. I would say The Rock. I think Nicolas Cage movies might be shown more often than any other actor just yep. from uh, as far as again TNT TBS the, just the network television yep Nicolas Cage movies gone in 60 seconds oh yeah um the, you could go the on the furious the list. are now on a lot just name a number oh, the furious you yeah. can't find That's Tokyo the, Drift yeah. they won't show you Tokyo Drift but they will show they you don't, I don't think they claim it do they could they even claim <laughs> I Tokyo think Drift, that one like, character survived. Set of Fast and Furious, <laughs> the box set of all the Fast and Furious. Does Tokyo Drift come in that box set? I don't think it does. No, that was that the one with Ja Rule, or was he in the first one? He I think that's the one with Little Bow Wow. Yeah, Ja Rule was in the first one. I I don't know if Little Bow Wow was in there or not, but yeah, Fast oh. and Furious Tokyo Drift is the one Fast and Furious that never <laughs> played. Ever. Uh, I had another one, another movie that was on. Oh, it, yeah, Rocky Four. Oh, yep, with yep. Dolph Lundgren. Yep, Rocky that's Ford on a lot. That is on. Well, just the they they rarely play the original. They rarely play yep. Rocky or the Apollo Creed Rockies. It's either Clubber Dolph Lang. Lundgren or every once in a while some Clubber Lane. Yep, and yeah, I love Rocky. Don't get me wrong, but wow. Am I over Rocky Four? <laughs> you bet. I tell you here's, what the, here's a classic scene from Rocky Four, though. And, and I, <laughs> at if you're the end, talk about Apollo dying. I'm going to be really sad. No, so no, that's the Apollo. worst scene. That one, that's one of the worst scenes in in movie history, in my opinion. Yes, Apollo died. There was no need for Apollo to die. No, he could have just been in a coma. Yeah, yeah, just been in a coma. He could have severely been injured. Put him in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Yep. You don't have to kill him. Okay, no. that that they went too far in that. But the last part when when Rocky defeats the Russian, oh no, he wins over the Russian <laughs> crowd. Right? Yeah. The communist crowd is now chanting for Rocky, and then at the end of the deal, Rocky with his two swollen eyes, he can barely see out of his out of his eyes. He stands in the middle of the ring and he's telling the 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 commie Russians, "Yep." If we can do it, we all can do it. <laughs> if, if me and, and Dolph Lundgren over here 
can get along and all of us can get along. The rest of the world are getting along. So ultimately, exactly. Rocky, little known historical fact, (laughs) ended the Cold War. Rocky beating according to Rocky four. According to Rocky four, if you were only basing your American history off of cinematic history, yep. Rocky is responsible for ending the Cold War. Period. That's that's absolutely. Yeah, if we can do it, you can. Oh my goodness gracious! <laughs> hey, there. You know, it's been on a great run, and it's it's not as widely known as the original. But next Friday and Friday mm-hmm. after next, with Mike mm-hmm. Epps taking over for Chris Tucker, who knows what happened to Smokey? Because that's Friday's a great movie, but Day Day. It, it, for me, like Kelly, is so mad when next Friday's on, and it's when Day Day gets the, the, the she sprayed a player, and I just <laughs> I can't stop laughing. Day Day, Baby D chasing Day Day around Pinky's CD shop. There is oh, there isn't man. anything better than Day Day. I don't even know what Ice Cube does in that movie. I forgot that Debo comes back because I strictly watch next Friday for Mike Epps is Day Day. He's got no idea. Baby's <laughs> comedic genius. That oh. entire movie, he is nothing but comedy. Just oh, every line out of his mouth is hilarious. <laughs> the other underrated character that is introduced to you in that in that second Friday, Pinky. Yeah. Oh, and Pinky comes back. Character. You're right at the yeah. party on Friday afternoon. <laughs> Pinky's character when he walks into the music store and, and catches Day Day and in in Cube sitting there and and yep. doesn't know who Cube is and he's, he's got the pistol in the back of his head. That's one of the funnier scenes that you'll ever oh. see. Yes, go and on YouTube right back, now. He comes back to the party and Friday after next in the apartment when they're trying to raise rent. Pinky's mm-hmm. scene is hilarious, but also Cat Williams before yes. he lost his mind. Yeah, Cat Williams and the uh, Terry Crews in the bathroom with the wrench, mm-hmm. and that is <laughs> MF for I am a boy. Is one of the best. <laughs> oh God, that is a, that is a great one. That is a great oh, one. Man. So what about it, obviously okay. comedies are are high on everyone's list as far yep. as movies that you're going to watch over and over again. What other dramas can you think of off the top of your head? That, that, yes. You, know, you, you mentioned Shawshank Redemption. Everyone loves that one. Um, oh, I'll tell you what I, I turn off. For me, obviously. Well, I, that's your weak spot. But I got a weak spot, too. I got a weak spot. And it's called The Notebook. Mm. And I, yeah, I, I turn it that. off. I turn it off when she remembers him. Because I refuse mm-hmm. to watch her lose it again. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, long backstory there. I was forced to read the notebook in high school by a person wow. I was dating. And that that sucked. The movie was way better with Rachel. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, though. When was the last time Rachel McAdams was in a show where she was not dating a time traveler or something terrible happened to her and her lover? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer. Because she's all... Question. Right, she's always a time traveler, or it's unheard of. And she had a great start to her career, and I don't know what happened. She did. The Family Stone. The Family Stone is a drama that I would watch always. The Family Stone. Great holiday movie that you watch every holiday. Yes, yes. You know which one I will not watch the end of as well. I am that guy. I don't like. I got enough stress in life. I got enough tragedy in life. Even though I've lived a very nice existence, I can't handle movie tragedy anymore, so I just turn stuff off. The one with Nick Cage, we go back to mm-hmm. your mention of Nick Cage, uh, <laughs> The Family Man, is that what it's mm-hmm. called? Where oh, he goes back one. in time with Taya yep. Leone. I turn it off, 
as soon as his daughter looks him in the eyes and says, there you are, daddy, turn it mm-hmm. off. Because I'm not watching him go back and lose his family. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. That brings me to just the concept of these moments in these in these movies that we all watch over and over again yeah. that are tear-jerking moments. Every time. Do you still shed tears even though you know it's coming? Well, for me, I don't watch it. So I couldn't answer that question because I turned the <laughs> shit off. Like Glory. You know Glory. When Matthew oh. Broderick and Denzel are about to get shot on the hill at the Confederate base, I turn it off. Well, Done. just the scene leading up to that where they're marching up the beach and, and yep. just the music that's playing and, and that scene in itself right there. That, yeah. yeah Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. When, when uh, Ricky gets shot, Ricky? turn it off. I turn it turn off. It off. I'm not going to watch it. That's the turn off moment for sure. Why the hell did Ricky go down the alley? That don't make any damn sense to me. Well, they, they should not have split up. They should nope. not have split up. Steve yes. oh. Jr. specifically said, let's stick together. Yes, right. For, yes, for he did. whatever reason, Ricky decides that he wants to go the opposite direction and drink his milk and not pay attention. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It Ricky does not make any everything. sense. Oh, he, man. He had it all. He Ricky could have had the world. He could have uh, had the world and instead ended up face down on the pavement. Yeah. His milk spilled all. Oh, just I don't. Wa- I don't really... watch the end of Saving Private Ryan. I don't do that either. No, I don't. I don't watch Saving Private Ryan. That's you not t- a movie. You don't, that, you don't watch my, it. I don't. It's not on my list of movies that I'll watch again. There are just certain it. movies like that. I, I don't like those type of movies. Like you're saying, as far as yeah. sad moments. Yeah. I don't like watching um, historical movies over and over again. Yeah, like you know, I get you. Yeah, because like I, it really happened. It oh, happened. I got you. Yeah, like twelve years a slave. I watched it one time. One time. That's yeah. all I need. I don't need yep. to. Watch, I don't need to watch it again. I really enjoyed it. It was a great movie. Yep. Saving Private Ryan. Same thing. A lot of these yep. war based movies. Hotel Rwanda with Don Cheadle. One time. Yep. Don't need to Don. watch it again. Don't yep. need to watch. Crash. It again. Remember Crash. One time. Yeah. yeah. Crash just uh, makes me mad. I mean, that just yes. those type of movies that just get you upset and mad and want to go out and fight somebody. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to watch those again. I want the movies that make me feel a little bit better uh, just as far as the feel-good movies. So that's why Titan. I don't know. That's that's bad. I was going to say more of your romantic comedies. Uh, wedding Crashers? Romantic comedies because of the feel-good moments at the end. And they just totally, make yeah. yeah, exactly. Because you would want to hang out with the writer of a rom-com because they're going to give you a good evening. If I mm. saw the person – that wrote this terrible tragedy. What kind of dude are you? What kind of woman are you? You're no fun. I don't need that in my day to day. I want to go wedding crashers where we, uh, Owen Wilson gets Rachel McAdams back and Vince Vaughn punches Bradley Cooper in the face. I'm totally yep. in. That's what I Thank want. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I want. Good to go. That's oh, it. by the way, I will watch. This is totally off the subject, but I will watch Dark Knight till the day I die. I just and, watched and, it the other day. I just yeah, How can you not? You want to see That's a magic it. trick? Boom. Face on yep. the pencil. Yep. Just to enjoy Heath Ledger's portrayal yep. of Joker in itself. That's that's all I'm I mean, it's that is again absolute brilliance. That's another podcast story. where we could talk about what could have been. Because can you imagine mm-hmm. the Batman trilogy if Heath Ledger doesn't die mm-hmm. and he can go forward as that character? Oh, I'm furious now. See now I'm mad. I would agree. I would agree. <sighs> Last thing on this subject. Okay. Scary movies. I won't. Oh. I, I love scary movies. I know you don't like. Okay. Them. 
I know a lot of really a lot of people don't like scary movies as much as right. I like scary movies, but they aren't nearly as good the second time around. <laughs> like you go to them in the theaters because I feel like they would be great in the theater and then just be terrible in the middle I, of the day. If I if I can, I'll watch them in the theaters. But most of the time nowadays, I I, I end up either on demand or or waiting until they come out on whatever channel. But I love scary movies for the first time. But the second, third, fourth, they're not, not nearly as fun. It takes the I'll fun away. You, I, I, for example, I think you watched this for the first time with me at my house, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. That yes. might have been the last scary movie I ever watched because I'm not doing the possession thing. Mm. Uh, that, that stuff may or that's may not be going scary. on. That's and a I'm different out. scary. Yeah, that's a different scary. Yeah. That's that. The Conjuring, I'm out. Yeah. No, yeah. thank you. If you're talking like uh, Freddy Krueger stuff, uh, that vampires, werewolves, I mm-hmm. we watched em- Emily Rose, and that when they came after the priest in the whole in the church, and the church couldn't save the priest. Done. See mm-hmm. you guys. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go watch uh, nope. animated DC short about the Justice League because that'll end the right way I want it to end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, cross the streams, wild card movies that are on that we will watch, and it and went in a lot of different ways, like wild card rounds always do. And we probably got a couple more ideas for the next one, just based off this subject. Cross the stream podcast. See you on the other side, Ray.